Welcome to your weekly tech news hour. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino. Thanks for joining me here on this lovely Monday afternoon as uh, as we do every week, at least uh, for the last five weeks we've done this before. A big thank you to Allison Sheridan, who was on the show last week. That was a lot of fun. If you missed that, check it out. Weeklytechnewshour.tumblr.com. We have all the episodes up there. You can hear all the latest about WWDC. But we're talking about this week in tech news and there is a lot going on, so we'll uh, let the music fade there and get right into it. Now, I don't know about you. We've talked a lot about a certain little Chinese company called Huawei. You may have heard of them. Some people say Huawei. I'm not sure where we fall on that. I've had some people say that is incorrect. Other people say that's preferred nomenclature. I'm just going to go with Huawei, if that makes sense. No hard H for me, thank you. Anyway, they've been in the news a lot. There's a current, uh, they're on the U.S. entity list right now, the U.S. Department of Commerce's entity list, which basically means they can't buy anything from a U.S. company unless uh, they get a permission slip signed before they can go on the school bus of commerce in the U.S. anymore. And when that news first kind of came out, of I was like, okay, um, not sure what that means. So they can't, uh, they can't buy off my eBay page. Well, it turns out it has some pretty wide-reaching effects. Over the last couple of weeks, we have seen... Major chip companies come out and say, hey, uh, we're Intel. Hi, how's it going? Guess what? You can't buy any of our chips. Turns out they run everything. That's a problem for Huawei. Uh, Another little company called Arm, which designs chips for mobile phones, says, hey, you can't use our designs anymore. There are standards bodies out there. You never thought about standards bodies before, did you? You fool! Neither did Huawei, apparently. Because they are now, a lot of them, Huawei is either getting kicked out or temporarily removed, or Huawei is even voluntarily uh, losing or taking themselves out of those associations. So they're losing says in like the upcoming Wi-Fi standards, the upcoming SD card standards. Again, wake yourself up. I'm sorry, that was very boring. Also very important for Huawei as an existential business concern. Sure, why not? But up until this point, it's been a lot of theoreticals, right? We've heard, okay, Huawei can't use an- like use the canonical version of Android, right? So they're going to have to fork Android for all their mobile phones. They're not going to be able to use Windows theoretically. Um, or it will cause problems with support long-term. Windows in China is already weird as it is. But there's a lot of been theoretical concern. And this week, we started to see the rubber meet the road and see some real-world implications. And that started out with uh, their CEO, Ren Zhengfei. Hope I got that right. He's founder and CEO. I don't want to lose any credit there. Uh, But basically announced really uh, uh, troubling revenue expectations if you're a Huawei uh, stockholder. I'm not, so I'm not too worried about it. But originally they were going to set to make in 2019, they were estimating they'd make anywhere between, you know, $125 and $130 billion. Billion with a B, folks. They're a big giant company. They make bags and bags of cash. Turns out (laughs) when uh, you can't buy anything from the U.S., Harder to make those bags and bags of cash. So now they are saying that for uh, 2019, it's looking like it's going to be closer to $100 billion. Now, again, uh, I'm not a rich man. My name is rich. Not uh, monetarily wealthy in any uh, meaningful sense of the word. However, $100 billion still seems like a lot of money to me. I don't know. Maybe maybe that's my uh, bourgeois uh, take on it. I'm not sure. Still losing, well, well, 100 million or 100 billion, excuse me, is still so much money. Um, 30 billion dollars losing that in a year is also a lot of money. I did the math, and it turns out that the 
US being on the US entity list is costing Huawei a little under $730 a second if uh, you take that 30 billion amortized over uh, 365 days uh, divided by 24 hours, 60 minutes in an hour, 60 seconds in a minute. You guys, I can do math. Anyway, so that's just just think about the gargantuan sums of money that Huawei is then losing. They're saying that's probably going to hold over for 2020 as well, kind of that lower revenue forecast. And to kind of set the bar in 2018, Huawei generated $104 billion in revenue. And, you know, kind of the big thing about Huawei has been outside of a lot of their infrastructure plays, which most people aren't familiar with. You may have heard about them as a mobile phone provider, right? They're competing against Apple and Xiaomi and Samsung. And I don't know if Motorola sells any phones in China. They barely sell them in the United States. Let's be honest, folks. But the idea being that, okay, this was a giant market for them, right? They were selling, they were one of the few companies out there in a slowing smartphone market where basically everyone has smartphones, not everybody, but even in developing markets, in markets that hadn't, that were still seeing, you know, the kind of hockey stick smartphone growth, not the US, but markets like India, markets like China, Southeast Asia, those kind of markets. Huawei, Huawei was seeing huge growth and one of the few companies that was seeing just just quarter on quarter on quarter on quarter growth. Apple, by contrast, again, wealthiest company in the world, depending on how the stock market fluctuates at any given day. But even they are seeing flatlining smartphone sales. So now Huawei had been their buoy. Now their CEO is now saying that just in the month since being on the U.S. entity list, that kind of uncertainty among consumers, but more importantly among carriers, right? Because, yes, not every market is like the U.S. where people mostly buy phones through carriers even when they're unlocked. Someone has to sell those phones, right? And there's less incentive to sell a Huawei phone when you know they're in all sorts of legal trouble with the United States, where you have no certainty about their supply chain, about what software they're going to be able to support in a year, in a month, in a couple days, who knows? There's all sorts of uncertainty. And in a month since being placed on the U.S. entity list, we're already seeing 40% drop-off in smartphone sales. This is for a company, again, that quarter on quarter on quarter on quarter has consistently beaten overall industry trends of flatlining or slowing smartphone sales and posted bigger and bigger numbers. And what's weird about that, not weird about that, but what's really interesting about that is the impact for all of the people that Huawei is not buying from, right? Because when you're one of the only people that for the past year, year and a half, maybe even two years, has been selling more and more phones, guess what? They don't make all the stuff for their phones all at once. That's why being on this U.S. entity list is a big deal. They're buying raw components. They're buying displays. They're buying RAM. They're buying storage. I don't know if they're buying the plastic. Maybe they're making that in-house. I'm not sure. But they're getting components all over the place. The U.S. still makes stuff. And so not being able to buy that and anyone that they can buy from, they are now going to buy less because of this effect, is going to have big implications down the road. And we're already seeing that kind of in part and parcel with this announcement from the Huawei CEO about uh, their uh, slashing their revenue forecasts for the overall year, we are now seeing, and, and keep in mind also, 
that that slash comes in almost halfway through the year, right? So up until being on that point, I would say, I, w- I think it would be safe to say, or maybe it's not safe to say, I'm not sure, but they're relatively on track for this. The fact that they're coming out with this now is that means in six months, they're losing $30 billion. So that's $1,400 or so a second. That's crazy. That, that's cuckoo. <laughs> Those are numbers that don't make sense. And yet, uh, we're, we're seeing the real world impact that this is having on Huawei. And like I said, this is not isolated to them alone. It's people that supply things for Huawei phones are now seeing that dip in production and seeing that the things that they put in their infrastructure equipment, their routers, their switches, that kind of stuff is all having this knock-on effect. And it's having real-world implications. For example, Broadcom just had their Q2 financial report. No one cares what their numbers are in comparison to Huawei. They're They're a relatively small company. Uh, still huge, don't get me wrong, but they're no Huawei. But they said basically solely on the weakened position of Huawei, they're cutting $2 billion. Uh, they're expecting to not have, uh, excuse me, they're expecting to have $2 billion less in sales in the next quarter. So not even a full year seeing that big impact. And the CEO's like, and we have no way of replacing that. There's there's not like there's another company out there that's going to buy $2 billion worth of Broadcom chips, right? Sorry, there's only so many people making phones, and it turns out they're making less phones. Now, I guess long-term, Huawei has continuing supply chain issues uh, and continued, if for whatever reason, this causes some sorts of issues where they are not able to make or produce phones or support them or whatnot, maybe that provides an opportunity for someone else to step in and fill in that gap. But there's a limited number of players that can do it. Certainly, a company like Xiaomi, I've mentioned before, they're kind of the... I think they're often seen as the Samsung to Huawei's Apple, maybe not quite as high-end, but a little bit more populist, if, if I understand it correctly, if I understand the dynamics of that market correctly. So maybe they have an opportunity to step in, but there's still a, a giant tech company in China. I have a feeling like maybe they're not planning on being too aggressive because who knows what kind of lists they'll end up on uh, if this uh, trade war, with uh, which has gotten quite hot, uh, with the U.S. government continues with China. So, you know, Xiaomi's not exactly in that. Maybe uh, a company in India, but again, they have an interesting situation where the Indian technology sector in general requires a certain percentage of any device that is sold there or any company that sold there to produce a substantial purport- or a percentage of those goods in India, right? So Apple is making phones in India. Huawei is making phones in India. Uh, Foxconn has tons and tons of probably very depressing factories in India. And so theoretically, there's the ability to scale there. But that's not something they can flip a switch on overnight. That's something that will require significant investment, capital, expertise. I mean, part of the problem, part of the reason we can't just, you know, flip a switch and move production back to the U.S., for example, is because it's not just the fact that they have a plant that magically stamps together smartphones, right? It's because there are whole ecosystems around that, around expertise, around having the technical experts that live in those factory towns in China, to say nothing of the huge swaths of uh, relatively underpaid labor uh, in there under conditions uh, some have described as hellish. But outside of just the labor supply there, uh, there's, there's whole networks of expertise, there's whole 
there's also the benefit of being able to assemble the phone right next to the factory that's making the glass that's right next to the factory that's making the you know that's that's making the silicon that will go in there as well right any if you're making it in the US or another market you then have to either rebuild that which takes years and billions and billions of dollars in infrastructure investment or you have to ship it that's slower your uh, supply chain is less reactive is less dynamic Basically, it's a big problem. So now Broadcom is feeling the pain as well. And then we're also seeing some product updates from Huawei itself, basically saying that, uh, hey, we're, we have no idea how we can sell some products anymore. For example, one of the big um, critical successes that Huawei has had in the U.S. recently, because, again, they don't really sell any phones. AT&T was supposed to carry some Huawei phones. And then magically that deal fell through, a.k.a. someone from the NSA knocked on their door and said, uh-uh, no, 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 not happening. And then AT&T tucked its tail between its legs. Anyway, but one of the big things that you could buy that said Huawei on it in the U.S. was their laptops. And by all accounts, they were reviewed fairly well. Uh, sites like uh, CNET, The Verge, Engadget had pretty glowing reviews to say about uh, one specific one, the Huawei MateBook X Pro or something like that. Had a lot of adjectives. The base model was like the Matebook. It was, it was like a, a pretty good formula. It's like good price, good performance. Looks like a MacBook, but doesn't cost like a MacBook, right? It's the class, It's the tale as old as time for a good laptop that doesn't run Mac OS, right? And so in 2017, big hit. 2018, still a big hit, basically selling the same model. And there was, you know, CES, we saw a whole bunch of new ones that were going to be coming to the U.S., and Huawei was kind of building a reputation as a consumer brand in the U.S. on the strength of those laptops. Now, the the <laughs> the hidden thing behind that was all, we have no idea if these all go away tomorrow. And we're finding out that they're starting to go away. So Huawei, uh, uh, last Wednesday, announced the MateBook X laptop launch, uh, the 2019 model, uh, would basically be on hold because they can't get any chips from Intel. And Microsoft sales are now restricted to Huawei as well from the U.S., so they have no, <laughs> they have no CPU, and if they, even if they did, they don't have an operating system to run on. Now there have been reports that, at least in the mobile phone space, Huawei is pretty confident that they can relatively quickly spin up their own CPU stuff, not an issue, right? The operating system though is kind of a bigger deal. Yes, you could run some terrible Linux distribution. I'm not saying Linux distributions are terrible. Linux hippies, back off. Stay on the road. I love Linux. I keep a USB drive of puppy Linux on me at all times in case I need to impress someone. And by someone, I mean no one. But running a Linux distribution yourself is way different than putting that on a consumer laptop and expecting that to be any kind of, I'm going to say good experience. There are ways to do it. Sure. But when people want to buy a laptop, generally they want to buy, Hey, I like to see that, uh, that windows logo or that Mac logo or whatever, you know, something that we know, not only now are you expecting people to maybe buy in other markets, Huawei is a much more well-known brand, but even still, Outside of the UI elements, now you have entire software stacks that don't run on your machines, even if they could run Intel processors, which they can't. So kind of a problem. They've also announced kind of unrelated to this, but we're talking about Huawei news, so I thought I'd throw that in there. 
that their foldable phone that they showed off at CES this year, the Mate X, they have a thing with mates and the letter X. I don't know what that's about, but whatever. The Mate X basically was the Samsung Galaxy Fold, but it looked better um, and it seemed cooler. They basically said, okay, we're going to push that back. It was going to come out this month. Supposedly it's now coming out in September. We'll see if it ever comes out and where Huawei actually is as a company in September. I would like to, they would like to think I'm sure that things would be back to relatively normal terms. I'm very dubious of the prospects, but we'll see what happens this summer. But yeah, that's that's basically where we're at right now. Um Huawei making less bags of cash. Don't know where they're going to get chips from. Don't know where they're going to get an operating system from and it's having effects on the rest of kind of their their supply ecosystem, which will have knock-on effects all along, right? I think the biggest one that you're going to find is we've already seen a trend over the last three years, I would say, of some cons- some some very obvious consolidation in the chip market, right? And part of that's spurred by the slowdown in smartphone sales, right? Part of that's spurred by, you know, the the PC market is almost 100% commodified, right? There's there's not a lot of specialization going on in that market. And I even with weird new laptops coming out, they're still all going to basically be the same machine. Yes, there's going to be difference. They're going to have different RAM, whatever. But it's a wholly commodified space. And it's there's nothing I really doubt there's gonna be anything on the market that's gonna, you know, spike sales dramatically, right? It may slowly increase. Sure. That's a commodified market. So you're seeing those companies already kind of in fear of or limiting the number of players there. I think with Huawei basically being off the market for any U.S.-based supplier, you're going to see that further go uh, go with the way of consolidation. Broadcom already tried to buy Qualcomm earlier this year. Or was it Qualcomm trying to buy Broadcom? They tried to buy each other. It was a big, messy divorce. It was very fun to watch. But it never happened. So I think you're going to see more deals like that the longer this Huawei trade, uh, war embargo, U.S. entity list, whatever you want to call it, goes on. So very interesting stuff there. Uh, If that wasn't depressing enough, hey, turns out we live in deepfake hell. If you're not familiar, deepfake is the name for when you take, there's a computer program or a, a a way to basically take the video of someone's face, put it on someone else's face and make it look like they're the person in the video. My favorite use of this is for putting Nick Cage's face on every other movie. By nature, making that movie that much better because, hello, Nick Cage. He's America's sweetheart, as no one calls him. But it has some really dubious, in all seriousness, some very dubious uh, uh, moral background. People are doing it to put celebrity faces on adult videos, which is all kinds of scummy. And it leads to all sorts of hand-wringing of, oh, can we ever trust any video that we see again? There was a really great demonstration of this where uh, they put Obama's face on a video of Jordan Peele talking, who does a really great Obama impression. And the first couple seconds you're watching, you're like, oh, this is, I've never seen this video of Obama. What's going on? And then they slowly faded the effect out to reveal the actual face. Kind of troubling. There are some ways to spot it. It's not perfect by any means. And it all depends. A lot of it depends on the skill of the person implementing it. 
And we saw another example of this. Uh, it was it's for an art installation in England where they had someone doing a Mark Zuckerberg impression, and they put Zuckerberg's face, uh, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg's face, on the video, and had him saying like, "Oh, he had you know." The reason Facebook's so popular is because he's part of the secret organization, all this weird conspiracy stuff. And of course, it's it's totally not right. Now, what's weird about that is there's a ban on sharing deepfakes on Instagram. But which Facebook owns. But for some, but they lifted it for that one. So people were all sorts of yelling about that because it involves Zuckerberg. I don't know. I, that to me is less concerning than kind of this overall phenomenon. And then... There was a, a story uh, that got picked up by The Verge amongst other outlets, but I saw it first there, where now this technology, it used to be you had to have an existing video of someone saying something, whether it was someone doing an impression or actual video of something to lay another person's face on top of it. Troubling enough, right? Well, researchers, um, I'm trying to remember what the specific institution is, but I know Adobe was kind of on board with it. Adobe's doing all of this weird, like, Photoshop outreach, basically saying, like, listen, we're trying to fix it before it gets totally out of hand. Don't blame us. But what they were able to do is take a video of someone talking, process it through, like, a deepfake machine learning uh, uh, algorithm, generate a transcript of what the person was saying, and then they were able to change the transcript, and then the algorithm was able to basically reverse engineer that and make the person look like and sound like they were saying that thing. And so the example that they gave, or the one that I saw going around, was the guy was saying, it was saying I love the smell of napalm in the morning, and they changed napalm to French toast, and it relic pretty seamlessly looked like that's what he was saying. Now, I don't know the extent to which you can wholesale cut things out and put things in, or if it's easier just to swap out one word. I would assume... Smaller corrections are more believable than others. You know, you surround it by things that are real so that the fakey bits, uh, there's, just, there's just less ways for them to go wrong. But the researchers said they needed about 40 minutes of video, 40, of just someone kind of talking on a, on a video with a set background to feed into the algorithm right now. In its most nascent state that it's ever going to be in, you need 40 minutes of video, which is basically... I don't know, any speech in a congressional committee, any, you know, any state of the union, anything like that. I don't know. I, politics is the first thing that came to mind where, where you'd have extended periods of someone talking at length. But you know it's only going to get better from there or more efficient from there. Better is not the word I would use for this. But essentially... We're, you know, and again, uh, talking about moral handwring, this is thinking of a situation where, you know, can we trust any video that we see knowing that that's out there, knowing that there's this ability to literally just change words on a page and suddenly a video can change to reflect that. I think it does is supremely problematic, not totally undefeatable. The same thing was being said 20, 30 years ago when the first, you know, kind of photoshops or, or computer Digital altering of images came about, right? And we even heard about this before. Uh, we, you know, we, we saw this with the advent of, you know, when people started doing doctored uh, photography. I mean, all the way back in, you know, 20s, 30s, 50s. You know, people saying, oh, we, we can't, if we can't believe a photograph, what can we believe? And we can't believe images from my digital camera. What can I believe? And now we're saying that about video and we'll be saying it about virtual reality or whatever in 10 years, I'm sure. But we found ways to kind of 
build up a natural skepticism, I think, of most images that we see. I mean, the first thing you see if something is unbelievable, you go, oh, that's Photoshop. I'm going to go to Snopes. I'm going to check that out. Or we've accustomed ourselves to going, okay, what are the marks of a Photoshop? Even a good Photoshop, in general, there are some markers that, I know there's an uncanny valley that the human eye is very good at picking up. I'm not saying that's the best defense for everything, but the human brain is good at pattern recognition and we can see when something is slightly off, generally. But there's another, I guess, salvation, sure, out there that I think is interesting because, like I said, Adobe was part of this research and they've also put out some additional research that they're saying they're going to build into Photoshop an AI that can detect when things are Photoshopped, which I think is a great way to perpetuate people still buying Photoshop in 2019. Uh, I think that's that's a very interesting model for it. But it's also Adobe realizing, hey, we don't want to be <laughs> the, uh, the, the software makers for mass disinformation, right? We don't want to just be part of the problem and of making people look skinnier in photos and making their skin tones look unnatural. We also want to have some tools to maybe pull back the curtain a little bit. And I think we're going to see that from any number of companies that could be on, on the forefront of this. Now, that being said, if you have a sophisticated enough actor and they're designing an algorithm to do these kind of deep fakes, theoretically they could design against the algorithm that Adobe is creating to detect them and that leads to a algorithmic arms race, which is the nerdiest phrase that I've used today. So thank you. But really interesting stuff and something to definitely keep an eye on. And, uh, you know, just, um, you know, maybe try and have some trusted uh, news sources. So if you see a crazy video of someone saying something they would never possibly say, you can check it out. I think the danger, though, is it's not for someone saying something totally off the wall. It's changing context. It's changing uh, intonation. It's changing more subtle things where you would say, oh, I didn't know he felt quite so strongly about that. That, I think, is where you're going to see this as a disinformation tool really be dangerous. It's not, you know, uh, Obama coming out and saying something totally out of character. It's saying something that sounds totally believable. Uh, that That is really the problem. And I think that that's my only issue, I guess, with the art installation is that uh, with, the, with the whole Zuckerberg example that I was talking about earlier, that... It's, it's too wacky. I, I want the a more banal use case for this to show how truly terrifying the future is. In less terrible news, sure, why not? If you're not familiar with the website Have I Been Pwned, I highly suggest you do. It's a really great resource. Basically, it was started by Troy Hunt back in 2013, and every time you hear about a horrific data breach where there's millions of records been leaked, you know, Yahoo gets hacked and they've been your password and email has been out there for years or whoever the the hack du jour is. What Troy Hunt does is he's a security researcher and he goes and he finds the paste bins or or wherever the location is of of these leaked files if it's available. He downloads them and he basically uploads them into a big database and he says, "Hey, Plug in your email. We'll let you know if your email or any information gets surfaced in any of these hacks or has been already. And then you can actually, now he doesn't host all of the information, right? But it'll point you to links to see exactly what was revealed. I've signed, and it's a, a kind of a service you can do. There's a free version and there's a paid version. I do the free version. 
But I was I found out that my email, a couple of my emails and a couple of my passwords had service in a couple of texts, and I went and go ahead and, you know, change those out. So it's a it's a it's a really valuable service. And I'm surprised no one else has done that before. Well, it turns out when you're doing that by yourself for six years and you have I don't know, 8 billion records and 3 million people subscribe to notifications. That's a lot to kind of handle on your own to kind of self-host. Admittedly, I mean, Troy Hunt is a very successful security researcher. Not saying he's he's in want or anything like that. But news came out this past week that he's looking to sell Have I Been Pwned. And there's been a lot of consternation about this. You know, it's been one of those kind of pure internet things. And it looks like it's going to be gobbled up by some sort of corporate entity or something like that. And I guess the fear would be that, you know, a company like Verizon or something like that, that owns Yahoo or the, the, the fetid corpse of Yahoo, you know, buys Have I Been Pwned? And then all of a sudden, oh, there's another Yahoo breach. Whoops, doesn't get listed on Have I Been Pwned because we don't want to publicize that, do we? One, I think that's a very cynical take on this. I don't think that's a very realistic one. Really, that news is going to be out there, right? It's not like a company that gets hacked can avoid the news cycle like that. Because really, the reason Troy Hunt's finding out about this is the same sources that he's seeing it are a lot of the security researchers and security reporters are looking on those same sites and looking for these same password dumps and and username dumps and trying to find those. So, again, that information is going to be out there, whether it's on Have I Been Pwned or not can only make the company look worse. So I mean, not that not that I want Verizon or, I don't know, Facebook to buy Have I Been Pwned. I really don't. But I still think it could serve a mission. And a company knows what they're getting in bed with if they were to acquire it. But the more encouraging thing, I think, is one that he has, like, he owns it wholesale, right? He doesn't have to answer to a board of directors. He doesn't have to make a profit on this necessarily and sell it to someone that he might, you know, might not have a preference for. So he can choose basically who he wants to sell it to. And he stated he wants to stay on board. He still wants to be involved. He's just like, I just can't, this is not my, I don't want this to be my full-time job and it's becoming my full-time job. Completely understandable. So the question is, where does it end up and who wants to take on that headache? Because on the same hand, it is also a little bit of a target, right? If you can either uh, reduce the credibility of it or get access to all those um, passwords, emails, that kind of stuff. Now, he does a very good job. I, I trust, as a security researcher, he's not associating any emails that are signed up for subscription with passwords that are out there or anything like that. But still, being a a well-known site for sound security guidance, is there's always going to be a target on your back. I guess who I would like to see get it, I would have said a couple of years or a year ago that I would have liked to have seen a company maybe like GitHub own it, but GitHub is now owned by Microsoft. I guess if I had to choose a giant, potentially evil, multi-billion dollar company, Microsoft is not the worst home that I could imagine for it. I could also see a company, something like a Cisco or something like a, a more infrastructure focused company that, you know, wants to get some goodwill out there, wants to, you know, slap their branding on it leave the management, you know, kind of at arm's length, but get some good P a good PR cycle out of it or something like that. You know, any of these big infrastructure companies generally has a dedicated security arm anyway. Uh, with Cisco, it's their Talos group, which breaks news all the time with, you know, they find 
weird ransomware and breaches and all that kind of stuff. I guess the best case scenario would it gets taken over by some sort of, I don't know, not the, maybe not the EFF, but maybe like the Linux Foundation or something, a, a foundation like that. It's nonprofit, is generally well-respected, uh, and, uh, and, and will be a good steward for what has been, for me, a fairly reliable uh, service. If you haven't checked it out, though, it may be worth your time. I'm not going to tell you to go there. You're an adult. You can make your own decisions, unless you're a minor and listening to this, in which case, ask your parent about it. In more lighthearted news, there was a uh, an acquisition that, on the face of it, you know, it's not the biggest dollar figure. It's not the biggest user base or anything like that. But I think is very interesting for the future of gaming. You may have heard of a little game called Fortnite. If you have anyone from the age of, I don't know, eight to um, Manchild, you probably know all about Fortnite. It's the craze. The kids like it. Tweens. Those are words. Anyway, it's the most popular game out there right now or ever. I don't know. I don't play it. I have things to do. I got kids. But the the publisher or the maker of Fortnite is Epic Games. You may not know that, but they make uh, the Unreal Engine. They make uh, Unreal Tournament. They make a, They actually make other games. They used to be, I in my mind, best known for the Infinity Blade series, which is really cool. But Fortnite is what they'll always be known for from now on. But they bought uh, a company called House Party, which is another app that's popular with the teens. If you're not familiar with it, House Party is basically a big video group messaging app for the teens. It kind of came out around the same time as uh, when Facebook and Twitter and a bunch of other companies really wanted to do live streaming, like video live streaming was going to be the next big thing. And then it was a big meh for everybody all at once. And they bought them for, I want to say it was, I think it's reported as being... Oh, sorry, we don't have figures. It's 35 million people use it, but it's super popular among the teens, the young, the youths, just the audience that would play Fortnite. Now, why does this matter, right? Okay, first things first, it seems clear that Epic realizes that there's already a social element kind of baked into Fortnite. That's one of the big appeals of it in a lot of ways, but building out a further video service or, or, or further, you know, um, communal group video chat and stuff like that throughout using you know, using the house party backend into games like Fortnite or other games that they have coming out could be huge for them. But what I think is more significant is we're starting to see gaming companies realize that they just can't be a publisher of cool games anymore. We're starting to see a lot of companies kind of have Discord anxiety, where Discord is the super popular chat app, and, and Twitch anxiety to a certain degree. Both of these rely on, you know, bringing communities of people together to watch or engage in gameplay. This is the, the nerdiest way to talk about an, a Twitch. <laughs> but watching people play games is super popular on Twitch talking to people or talking through or at people as they are playing games or to people while you're playing a game on discord is super popular as well. And I think Epic is realizing that, Hey, it's in our best interest to maybe build our own and not count on a third party that we don't control. And we, we have all sorts of, you know, maybe have potential conflicts with down the line. Now Epic has caused some 
controversy in the gaming community already. They've kind of changed. They've, they've been trying to be very aggressive in changing the rev share model of dollars that are paid to develop percentage of dollars paid to developers um, versus the cut that they take as a as a publisher. They've they've kind of put out their own game store, and they've tried to be very aggressive with that, but at the same time forcing exclusive content, which rubs gamers the wrong way. Gamers get rubbed the wrong way a lot. Turns out. So I hope they have learned their lesson from that, and they're when whatever they do with House Party down the line that they don't try and force an exclusive and allow people to use whatever platform they want to, whether talk to their friends or talk to an audience, um, especially among, you know, the only people that are more prickly than gamers are gamer influencers. So I could see all sorts of controversy down the line if they don't handle this right. But I also think you will see other companies, other big publishers, if they're not already, if they're not already developing their own systems for these kind of chat to look to make similar acquisitions. Now, I don't know if there's another app out there like House Party that has that kind of very specific audience that does almost perfectly aligns to Fortnite. The only other company I can think of off the top of my head is a company like Snap that makes Snapchat. They're not quite in the same vein because they're all about ephemeral messaging and it's more one-on-one and it's less group by nature. But I wouldn't be surprised if you know, Snapchat, which is doing okay as a publicly traded company, is not doing all that great, not doing that bad. I guess when you're competing, though, against Instagram and then Facebook, uh, you know, as a matter of course, gets uh, can be a little difficult. So maybe, you know, down the line, if they're not in that great of shape, but still have a very tight core teen demo that they can use as a as a method of selling maybe maybe they get into that you know snapchat's already getting into gaming themselves so maybe they're trying to reverse engineer that now it's a completely different audience than the audience that is interested in fortnite they are i mean fortnite's already considered a relatively casual game depending on who you ask don't yes i know you're very serious about it stop but snapchat is doing super casual games like too casual for a cell phone very simple stuff, but there's an audience for that. And I think turning themselves into maybe a, a game amplification platform, it's not the worst idea. Anyway, very interesting. I'm, I'm wondering what, what the next game company will be. I will admit I am not the biggest gamer out there. I, I have an interest in the space. I just don't have the time to really enjoy it. So I don't know if EA already has something that they think is a competitor to this. The problem with EA, though is if they develop themselves, it's probably horrible. That's just my opinion. But they may be in line for an acquisition down the line. They're the other they're the other big kind of big publisher. The other one's Activision Blizzard, and they kind of have their own situation, as it were. So we're on uh, we're broadcasting uh, this show on WRUW. Hi. If you're listening to it live, if you're listening to it right now, unless you've found the podcast feed, in which case you're not listening to it live and you're not listening to it on WRUW. But anyway, ordinarily, I would say the vast majority of time here on the radio station, it's usually a, a music-focused station, I would say. I would say talk radio is the is the definite minority uh, in, uh, in programming here, and that's fine. People like the music. But there was a story here that I thought nicely aligned with, you know, the, the greater musical mission of WRUW, and that just came out uh, earlier today that uh, the music lyric site Genius, you may have known them as Rap Genius back in the day, they've rebranded to Genius because they now have all sorts of music lyrics. But their whole shtick is 
if you want to know what the lyrics to a song are, they're, they'd like to consider themselves the definitive source of that. And so they have, they're basically yelling and uh, asking people to report on the fact. The Wall Street Journal reported this, and I'm sure there was a very uh, uh, substantial input from Genius uh, as to the reporting. They filed several complaints now with Google, essentially stating that they are stealing their song lyrics and surfacing them in the search window itself. So if you search for a song lyric in Google right now, it'll pop up what's called an information card. And that's before you click on anything, any search result. And it's, you know, from Google's justification, it's, hey, you want information. You don't particularly care where it's from as long as it's accurate. So if you're looking for a song lyric, why not surface it right there? I do it all the time for my Jens Lechman lyrics. But what Genius is alleging is that Google is getting that content from them and then not giving them any credit or preventing them from getting any click-through, which is the bigger deal, right? Because the way Genius pays the bills is you click to get their lyrics and then they, you watch an ad and they make a little a fraction of a penny and you do that billions of times and they make bags and bags of cash. Now, you may say, okay, well, how is there to prove that the lyrics are on, you know, are in the liner notes or something like that? There's a, there, there must be a definitive source. Well, in a lot of cases, and this is why Genius started out as Rap Genius, in a lot of the cases, either the lyrics are intentionally uh, obscure or perhaps not apparent just on a casual listen. But in other instances, Genius actually went to artists and got them to definitively write the lyrics for their site. And so one of the examples, the reason they're saying that Google is stealing this is they're like, hey, the artist came to us, gave us the definitive, you know, take on the lyrics. And we're the source of that. So how are you getting that if you're not scraping it from our website? They're saying it's anti-competitive, which given Google's market share has a decent argument to it. The other thing, though, that makes this amazing and as a, a as a typography nerd, I absolutely love, is that they embedded a weird watermarking technology in all of their or in, in a bunch of their lyrics. When they thought that Google, all the way back in I want to say it was 2016, when they first got suspicions that Google was doing this. They started watermarking song lyrics by alternating the use of the comma. I'm sorry, the apostrophe and the single quote mark. So the apostrophe is curled, the single quote mark, theoretically, is just straight up and down. And so they used that as Morse code and implanted the word red-handed uh, in Morse code using that as a series of dots and dashes, which is amazing, let's face it. And then they cited 100 or more songs. Uh, over. They said they're saying over 100 songs that Google replicated those down to their embedded weird Morse code that evidently no one in Google was like, hey, why, why is this different? Because probably they just scraped it all. It's all good. And so they're saying that's definitive proof and they're, they, they haven't filed any legal action. And this is where it gets interesting because in the Wall Street Journal article, they, they were consulting with a intellectual property lawyer and basically saying, you know, Genius doesn't have a copyright on any of these lyrics that belongs to the individual artists or the labels or, or some other party unless... Genius was the publisher of the song, and even then they wouldn't necessarily own the copyright. But they don't own the the copyright to that specific work, so it's unclear how any legal action would shape up based on, you know, this complaint. Because right now it's just, they're just complaining to Google. 
to Google's credit, they've come out and said, uh, listen, uh, all of those information cards, uh, we license those out. We don't directly deal with them. And if we were to find out that anyone was acting untoward, my words, not theirs, we would cut them off and we would fire them and we would fix it all. We're, we're not evil, except we changed our mission and we can be evil, but that's okay. So this feels like something that will resolve itself relatively well. I don't think Google really wants a further black eye of taking this to court, especially since they're already facing antitrust scrutiny in Europe in now starting in the U.S. in a very serious way. Um, I imagine I imagine that that's the truth, that they license out. They don't care as long as those song lyrics get up there, but they also weren't maybe doing due diligence or maybe they had worked with this partner before and they had proven to be trustworthy and they just got lazy. And didn't think that someone would psychotically embed Morse code <laughs> using apostrophes and quote marks into the lyrics of the song. However, super smart play, genius. But I thought that was an interesting musical story. And then in other music, weird music tech news, someone stole a mini disc archive of unreleased material from Radiohead. And basically tried to blackmail to prevent it from getting out, asking for, I think it was $150,000. Let's just take a step back and just breathe in the majesty that is the word minidisc archive. In my mind, I pray that Tom York stores all of his musical archives on minidisc. It's my most beloved defunct musical medium. It makes no sense. It never made any sense. But when I first started here at WREW, we played all our promos off Minidisc, and that's the first thing that I ever loved about this station. So seeing Minidisc in the news, already amazing. Then on top of it, you know, I don't know what you would do if uh, someone tried to blackmail you by releasing music that was several decades old. Maybe not the best quality. Maybe you don't want it out there. Maybe it's not representative of your work now and you feel a little embarrassed about it. But no, Radiohead's like, okay, fine. Guess what? We're going to release it first. We're going to give the proceeds to a charity and it'll be on sale for like 21 days. So go ahead and release it because now we look now now we get bonus points. Not that Radiohead, I guess, has an image problem. Do they? I don't know. Other than being like aging hipster music. But I just think that was a really great approach to being like, fine, you, <laughs> you want a ransom? No, we're going to donate to charity. So good on your Radiohead and uh, Hacker Dude. I don't know. Maybe just be happy that you have a weird Radiohead mini disc archive. Those are like some of the greatest combinations of words ever uttered in human history, and you blew it. Way to go, guy. All right, we got about uh, 10 minutes of uh, show here left before Not Your Grandma's Classical Music is on here at WRUW. If you're listening to the podcast feed, I highly suggest you check out the archive at WRUW.org and check out that show because it's amazing. Or just keep listening if you're listening on the radio. We had some more, uh, some some interesting Facebook being Facebook news. You may remember a kerfuffle, I want to say late last year, maybe earlier this year. Facebook had a research app out there where they were encouraging teens and minors to use this research app and they would give them a small monetary compensation for their time. It turns out they were using it as like a direct VPN into Facebook and using that for research purposes. So all of your traffic was going unencrypted over to Facebook. And uh, people turned out not 
don't like that uh, when Facebook is specifically targeting the sensitive information of minors. And it caused a whole big kerfuffle. Apple revoked uh, some security certificates because the way Facebook was doing this was they were using an enterprise management certificate. It gets very nerdy very quickly, but basically they were using a technology that's supposed to be for enterprises, for mobile device management, to authorize these apps, and you're really not supposed to do that. They revoked their certification on the App Store for a hot minute. Google, I think, did the same thing. And ultimately, the app, over time, relatively quickly disappeared. But that doesn't mean people aren't still interested in it because, yeah, don't do that to kids, um, guys. So in a letter to uh, U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal, uh, Facebook disclosed that of U.S. users, 31,000, uh, they, they had the information, they had received information from 31,000 Facebook users, of which 4,300 of them were minors. Now, I'm, I'm torn on how to feel on this because on the one hand, Facebook has 2 billion users. So 31,000 doesn't seem that bad. However, as a parent, 4,300 minors that had their Facebook beam directly into Facebook brain seems like that's about 4,300 more than it ever should have been. So I don't want to let them off the hook just because compared to the huge uh, masses of Facebook users, that that's a relatively small number. The other thing that I think is interesting, though, is that taking it back a step, turns out also the U.S. wasn't the only market they were interested in doing this. India is a very important market, I think, for anyone. There's literally over a billion people there. Huge market. And Facebook was operating the research that app there as well. And they collected uh, 156,000 users in India, 29,700 of which were minors. Now, I don't know what the data privacy laws or, or how those extend to minors in India. But again, that's where it seems, you know, I, I don't want to bury the lead and only focus on U.S. affected users because as a percentage, I guess, of population, that's a greater percentage of population affected in India than it is in the United States. So I'm glad that Facebook is letting us know the extent of their villainy, but I'm very depressed that they did that in the first place and didn't think anyone would care. The other thing, and I think this will get us close to finishing out the show here, is that there's been speculation now for a long time that Facebook is going to launch their own cryptocurrency. Um, if you're playing the consumer technology buzzword bingo, congratulations, bingo. Um, the idea behind this is that it will help make international transactions a little easier. I think this is always the justification whenever there's any company that's pursuing some kind of blockchain or some kind of cryptocurrency project. And they're working with major bank processors. Um, we're looking at uh, Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, Uber, Stripe, and Booking.com, my favorite booking site. Um, that was sarcasm. Anyway, uh, working with all those companies to help you know integrate this coin and make, instead of having to, to transfer currencies, you know, go from... U.S. dollars to whatever or back to U.S. dollars, having it all in a single coin. And the the whole idea of this was that unlike Bitcoin, which is backed purely by faith that Bitcoin is worth something, I guess theoretically it's also a digital embodiment of time and energy, but that gets more esoteric. Anyway, the, the Facebook coin, which is supposedly supposed to be called Libra, is now... Is, is what is called a stable coin. So it's effectively something that's backed up by actual money. 
um, kind of like the gold standard was back in the day uh, with uh, with U.S. currency, right? So it's not just based on the faith that Facebook is backing this thing, but Facebook has a bag of cash and other securities that do this. They're not the only ones making these stable coins uh, out there. Some companies that make them have had some problems, though, in the past because it turns out you can say that something is backed by money and then it doesn't necessarily have to be. And when people find out, they get kind of mad. Anyway, so they are starting an independent foundation, very creatively called the Libra Foundation. And they're looking for uh, companies that would be involved, like Visa, MasterCard, uh, Uber, those kind of companies that would benefit from this to basically take over operation of a node on that network, which is one of the things that kind of passes transactions along. I don't want to get into the, the, the details of how a cryptocurrency works. Basically, it's a big distributed ledger. Try and make sense of that. Anyway, each of these companies would pay $10 million and get a seat at the table as, as part of this independent foundation and theoretically get some say into how governance works for it. And the big news this week is that kind of all got stabilized and is now set for a launch in 2020 and that they've actually named partners. Up until this point, you know, it was presumed that some of the big payment processors, some of the big international uh, uh, internet companies where saving money on transaction fees for, you know, changing or, or working with international banks and stuff like that would be a huge benefit. And now they're naming partners. Now, Facebook said they want, uh, they're, they're hoping to get 100 nodes on board. Uh, we'll see if they fill that out. I don't think it'll be a problem for them. I am interested to see how successful this will be. I also think, and I'll leave on this thought, that this to me reflects a fundamental shift in how Facebook views itself, or is maybe representative. It doesn't it, it isn't the only signpost, but it's another in a signpost of how Facebook is changing how they view themselves. And that is as a, a generational company, right? They're no longer a company that's like, okay, all we care about is growing our monthly active users quarter on quarter. Certainly they, they love that. They love selling more ads and stuff like that. But this to me is like a long-term strategic plan that says, hey, Facebook's going to be around in 15, 20 years. And... If we can, you know, create some sort of de facto back-end international uh, currency standard, especially when, you know, even after a decade of hearing about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, it's still an extremely nascent space where we're seeing, we're only really seeing big companies starting pilot projects or starting very rudimentary implementations of it. This is effectively Facebook throwing a lot of weight and a lot of money on a, a ground floor of something that could build generationally. And, and be a, a major next new avenue of growth for the company. Um, and I think the idea of Facebook as a generational company, as something that visualizes itself being around in 100 years, is truly the bleakest way I could end the show. But that just about does it for your weekly tech news hour. Really enjoyed the show. Thank you so much uh, for listening. If you caught all of or caught some of this and you want to catch the rest of it, go to Weekly Tech News. I'm sorry, Weekly Tech News Hour is the name of the show. WeeklyTechNewsHour.tumblr.com. That's where you can find the podcast. Subscribe to it in your podcatcher of choice. Make sure you stay tuned next for not your grandmother's classical music. But until next week, Monday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern Time, for myself, for WRUW, for technology fans everywhere, here's wishing you and yours to have a super sparkly day.